live from the empire of lies, an oasis of truth, free speech, and open debate in the vast wasteland that is the new world order under Joe Biden. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. So how you doing, Rod? Is the stock market still falling? Last I saw, the stock market was falling all day, perpetually. Yeah, no, from last time I saw it, it was still falling, but uh, I'm doing good, thank God. I can't complain. How about yourself, Lee? Well, I'm fine. I don't own any stocks, so I'm pretty good. But am I right? Was the stock market in a big crash today, as predicted by Mark Frost yesterday? Oh, yeah, I think it was two days ago, but yeah, definitely. Yeah, because Mark predicted big stuff is coming in the stock market. And sure enough, on a Friday, here it is. Maybe this serve the big fall that Mark Frost predicted on this very show. We have a great show today. First off, in the first hour, is a great friend of the show and a guy who I always like talking to, straight out of Moscow, Mark Slobodin. He's on in the first hour, right, Rod? Correct. And then in the second hour, we have the very smart Daniel Zard. And we'll be talking to him about what's going on in the world. And we've got a lot of great clips and your calls. 202-521-1320 on The Backstory. Now, the first clip I want to get to, Rod, is in honor of Owl Killer, our caller. You know Owl Killer, right? Yeah, great, great caller. Yes, and we like him, but he likes the hippity hop music. We talked about that uh, the other day on the show. He's not so much into Pink Floyd, right? Because he where it could lead to drug use, but he likes hippity hop. Is that correct? Yeah, no. Me and Al Killer probably share the same uh, taste in music, and and yeah, you know, uh, the modern music. Uh, I'll say after two thousand. 12 is pretty much no good it's pretty much trash but yeah early 90s 90s early 2000s uh pretty pretty good hip-hop back then now how dare you say that because rod you were the one who dropped on me is that the right term am i sounding like an old guy you dropped a a song on me right that's correct that's correct and it, it is hippity hop right yeah it's rap okay so let's hear a little bit of that. We only have a short clip because most of it's so offensive, we can't play it, right? But we yeah, can play yeah. a short clip for news purposes. This is We are playing this because it's news. That's why we're playing a short, like, five-second clip. So let's hit the clip. Drop some science on it. Okay, now again, we're not playing that for musical value. So just so everyone's clear, but news value, because everyone heard what she was rapping about, Plan B, and she's got murder on her mind, and she's on her way to the clinic. So what would you sum up, as Rod, as a theme of that hippity hop song? I think it goes along with uh, society and where we're at, Lee. And I've been saying it. I, you know, I, I don't think I made it up. I think I've just uh, been hearing it and uh, agreeing with it. But it's the culture of death, Lee. And, you know, she was spelling it out at first uh, in, in, in the clip I uh, 
God, she's spelling out aborting. So she's going and she's aborting. She's got murder on her mind. And then, uh, you know, a, you know, a significant amount of young girls might hear this song and, it, you know, it's a catchy beat and it might, you know, <laughs> uh, but the, the, the fact that, that this woman would come out and, uh, put out a song like this and she's very clear and explicit, you know, the songs, uh, it's baby daddy free, but uh, the tune, you know, the, the tune you hear is murder on my mind. Yeah. Now I played that for my girlfriend Danny, who's uh, you know, wants to have a kids eventually. And uh Danny had to go listen to Christian music immediately afterwards. Does that make sense as a reaction, Rod? No, I I, I agree with that. The um you know, I didn't believe I didn't believe this at first when I first heard there was a song. There was a this is a remix to an, another song that doesn't have to do with abortion. But uh, I didn't believe it at first. But then when I heard it, I was like, oh my god! And I I don't I haven't really personally anybody that uh I've you know that I know that has heard it has been in agreement with it. That actually been discussed it. But there is people who uh who do like it and um, who do promote it. Now that's why we played it for news purposes, and we're only playing a few seconds because we don't want to play a song really. But for news purposes, I like you, Rod. I was skeptical when I heard about the song. You mentioned it yesterday, right? And it it kind of buzzed by me. Then when I saw the clip that you sent me, and I watched the whole thing, I suffer so you don't have to. I watched the whole thing. Is amazing. It is. I mean, I I don't think much of our society, but this was a new low. Do you agree? No, I definitely agree, Lee. And uh, you know, you know, I'm a father of two uh, two girls, and you know, it's, it's mainly like two or three girls in the video, and they're dancing in front of a player and playing her, shaking her butt. And you know, in my mind, it was like, well, you know, who raised who raised these young girls and. If, if their parents are in, in their lives and whatnot, um, you know, what do they think about them making this song? Do they think it's just going to work? Uh, do they think about the money? Do they think about, uh, you know, the long lasting impact of you putting out a statement like this and promoting it? Or, you know, uh, that's how I think about it. And the, the video clip, it features a lot of you say dancing, but the specific step that they're doing is the, the torque. Am I correct? There's a lot of twerking in front of Planned Parenthood. In this video, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, also they point to where the baby would be in her stomach, and you know, after she gets the after she's done at the clinic, it's gone. Yes, and might it be a drive-by, or is that does the bullet go right through and kill you? She might oppose that because she doesn't want to die herself. She doesn't want to murder a baby. But uh, cataloging the descent of American society. And playing some hippity hop for Al Killer. I'll bet Al Killer is not a big fan of that song. That's my guess. Yeah, no, I don't think. I don't think. Like I said, I don't know anybody personally that I know, or even you know, uh, just casually was in agreement with this. But there's people on the internet and I, uh, on Twitter that I've seen that have you know been laughing at it and saying it's a it's a catchy song. But uh, I don't think there's anything to laugh at. You know what I'm saying? And I didn't think it was that catchy. Do you know what I'm saying? It didn't didn't have a a chorus like hip hop hooray, for instance. That's catchy. But did you think it was that catchy, Rod? I think they just keep repeating it, so it kind of you know if you listen to it enough, it kind of gets stuck on your mind. And like I said, it's a what we have now is a or what we've had for a while, but it's definitely reared his head the last 
two or three years is we have a culture of definitely uh, uh, these young people now from 12 to 17, 18, uh, you know, you say anything, anything wrong to them, they'll pull out a gun and shoot you and in, in certain parts of the country. Um, now, they, have, speaking, they have no comfort. Yeah, go ahead. Speaking of uh, culture of death, let's talk about Hunter Biden for a second. Did you see the Daily Mail printed what's coming out that was the specific information about Hunter Biden they may look into him for charges for? Did you see that story broke this morning? Uh, no, I didn't see that one from the Daily Mail. I just saw a lot of stuff from uh, kind of yesterday they were just talking about. This is this morning, and we all know Hunter Biden's been up to some bad business. But what they're saying they're going for the charges on, apparently, is he filled out an application to get a gun. And in the application to get a gun, they ask you, do you use drugs? Or, and Hunter Biden, guess what Hunter Biden said? No. He said, no, I do not use drugs. And apparently, apparently, don't be shocked, Rod, but apparently Hunter Biden uses drugs. I know. I know. You're shocked. But apparently he uses drugs. So since there's so much evidence of him using drugs, him filling out an application and saying, give me a gun because I don't use drugs could get him into some trouble. Does that make sense, Rod? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, all you had to do was see his uh, his video of him in a, in, a, in a scale, a foldable scale for his to weigh his crack. If you, if you, Lee, you know, you know, you've been around a while. If you walk up to somebody and, you know, you have an, or you're at a bar and they pull out a, uh, a foldable scale, they're probably involved with drugs. Or counting calories because uh, I'm an old person, you know, so I've actually never seen a person pull out a portable scale at a bar. I'm. I guess lead a sheltered life, Rod. But uh, I've never seen that. But he did. He did do that. So we'll talk more about that. And we have another amazing clip later. Kanye talking about Jared Kushner, right? Yeah, that's right. He doesn't like the Kushner family. And that's coming up after we talk to the great Mark Sloboda, straight out of Moscow. Coming up after this short break on... The backstory. And we're back in the backstory and twerking on the radio at 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Actually, Command Central, don't worry. There's no twerking going on here. So, fear not. Joining us now, big friend of the show, an expert on all things to do with Russia and Ukraine, Mark Slobora, straight out of Moscow. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Lee, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the back. So, we have lots of big stuff to talk about, including Zelensky threatening nuclear war and then not getting his Nobel Peace Prize the next day. But last time we were on the show, I asked you about a flag I had bought. And I mentioned the flag had the uh, eagle symbol on it. And I didn't actually understand that. And as you started to give your explanation, suddenly your 
you vanished. But it was such a good explanation. And my girlfriend was very impressed by how much you know. I can hit you with a question like that, and you go into it. So finish, what does the Russian flag with the eagle signify? Okay, yeah. Um, so uh, first of all, I mean, the official Russian flag is the tricolor, right? Um, uh, white, blue, and red. Uh, so um, the, however, the double-headed eagle is the official emblem of Russia, much like uh, the bald eagle uh, with the uh, uh, olive leaf and the uh, fasces is the symbol uh, emblem of the United States. Um, so it can be seen on various things, and you can see it superimposed on the flag. You know, sometimes like for decorative reasons, but it is not part of the official flag. However, it is the emblem. Um, and Russia is far from the only state with using the double-headed eagle symbol. A lot of countries, I think even Albania, uh, has the double-headed eagle. And it, it, where the origin of it is, is to uh, what we know of today as the Byzantine Empire or the Eastern Roman Empire. Um uh, after Rome and the West fell, the Eastern Roman Empire, based in uh, Constantinople, previously Byzantium, today it's known as Istanbul, it lasted for another thousand years, right? Um, and uh, it had, you know, uh, a really interesting history, uh, effective military history, even more effective diplomacy uh, history, very good at playing uh, games with the surrounding states, and it had a, a huge influence on the rising state of um, uh, what would become Russia then. It was uh, then uh, Muscovy. Uh, for, first, uh, uh, well, first the, the Kievan Rus states, and then, then eventually Muscovy. Um, and um, uh, it helped spread uh, orthodoxy the orthodox religion the the religion of the eastern roman empire uh you know past like um uh 400 ad um to uh russia um so it had a huge influence there and at uh some point the royal uh the aristocratic families of what would be the eventually the russian empire uh, uh married uh, a daughter of the Byzantines, and then when the Byzantine Empire fell in 1453, uh, somewhere around there, to the Ottoman Turks, um, uh, Russia kind of adopted the the moniker, the idea that they were the Third Rome, that they were the descendant of the Byzantine Empire, which was the you know the Second Rome, and then. Um, that, that they were the third Rome and that there would be no other. Uh, so uh, that's how the double-headed eagle, and it's often viewed in Russia as particularly emblematic of Russia looking east, looking west, being the largest country in the world, bordering both the Atlantic and the Pacific. Uh, so that's where that symbol comes from and why it's still frequently used. But again, there are many countries in, you know, the, the, the former, uh, you know, uh, uh, East Roman Empire, the Eastern Europe that used the double-headed eagle Russia as their emblem. Russia's not the only one. So I'm going to speak French for a moment. Forgive me. It's So it's not considered a faux pas. See, a little French there. It's not considered a faux pas for me to have the flag. It's not an insult no. 
to Russia or anything. It's cool. No, right? no, no, no. I mean, on, on holidays and stuff, sometimes you can see the flag that way here. You know, they, they you can buy them on the streets, you know, little flags for kids to wave and stuff with the emblem imposed on the tricolor like that. It is not at all. It, it is the, the emblem is the official, uh, you know, emblem, the seal of the Russian Federation. So, uh, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, so just checking, Mark. And once again, a brilliant explanation. You are indeed the Wikipedia of this show, because that was a very thorough explanation. Oh, oh, that's so low. That's so low, Lee. Come on. No, 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 do no, I censor? no. Do I censor like Wikipedia? Come on. No, 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 no. You're much better looking than Wikipedia, Mark. So let's talk about Zelensky. This maniac was calling for a NATO nuclear strike on Russia a couple of days ago. And trying to, the next day, get a Nobel Peace Prize. Am I mischaracterizing Mr. Zelensky at all? You you are not at all. No matter how much his regime is trying to walk back his comments now, even the the more honest Western commentators are admitting what he said. He specifically said preemptive strikes. And he said that specifically in the context before and after of nuclear, because he was talking about this fantasy um, disinformation, this coordinated disinformation campaign that's been going through the Western media that 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 Russia is desperate and losing and they're about to use tactical nuclear weapons uh, in Ukraine and where that stems from is a, a, a speech Putin made on, I believe, the 21st of September, where he said that uh, he would do, he would use all means at Russia's disposal to protect the Russian people and Russia. And I'm not bluffing. And that, that's what he said, right? And that has been uh, distorted. And, and uh, you know, you talk about a liberal <laughs> translation of that. Uh, in the Western media, too. Putin says he's going to use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, <laughs> right? Uh, so that has dominated. I did two pieces on this in my own uh, little YouTube channel, The Real Politik, uh, this week. Um, and um, uh, there, Russia is not going to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, right? It, it, they don't need to. Right. They've only used 10 percent of their active duty military so far, and they've just made it possible to use all of their active duty military. Their one million plus they've called up 300,000 reservists on top of that. Right. They they once they uh, I mean, they should have called them up a long time ago. Right. That's a, a beef with the Kremlin that I think I've been talking about pretty regularly since February. They're finally taking this war seriously, recognizing that they're fighting all of NATO at once. Um, and uh, it will take them another couple, two or three months to organize everything and get it in theater, retrain those reservists that need retraining. Uh, but, I mean, the, the tide will, will, will turn back again and, and this will be finished. Russia does not need and will not use nuclear weapons. Russia has a very strict and very clear nuclear use doctrine, right? There's only two instances where they will use nuclear weapons. One is a first strike on Russia by a nuclear weapon or other weapon of mass destruction, right? Uh, and two 
if there is an overwhelming conventional invasion of Russia of such scale and magnitude that it threatens the very existence of the Russian state. And I think we can pretty much guarantee that uh, the second one is definitely not on the cards in what is happening. I don't I don't think that Azov and Kraken uh, are going to be marching on Moscow anytime soon. Uh, so um, that 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 is something that's simply uh, not in the cards. It's and to to suggest that it is, I regard as a coordinated campaign of disinformation uh, and demonization of Russia, which is his routine. But I think it might be a little bit more than that. I think it might be. Mark, Mark let's stop for one second. <laughs> Let me just ask you: Do you know? What the U.S.'s official position is about what they say is their position on the use of nukes. We know that they've used them before and on an innocent population, but they they have a current statement on it. Does U.S. Yeah, rule out? U.S. U.S. policy doctrine does allow for preemptive attacks where they believe weapons of mass destruction might used against the United States, which is considerably more liberal uh, than that policy. As well, the Pentagon has been working for years developing and deployed what they call more usable tactical uh, nuclear weapons, right? Battlefield nuclear weapons. So um, that is not really enshrined very well in U.S. nuclear policy doctrine, but, you know, that's that's what it is. Uh, okay, but Mark. Thanks, here, thanks for that. Here, here's what yeah. I see the, the potential is for. I see all of this coordinated effort across the media, Western governments, trying to say that Russia is about to use nuclear weapons, specifically tactical nuclear weapons, right? And I'm like, why are they so specific about this? And um, Biden is, you know, making these statements like, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. Right. And I'm thinking, don't do what? We didn't say anything about this. This is a straw man of your own creation. I see that there's a potential that they're building a narrative framework here for a potential false flag scenario. Now, um, involving either a tactical nuclear weapon, right, or a dirty bomb. That would then be blamed on Russia and provide a justification for a probably not a NATO, but perhaps let's say a U.S. and a Polish and maybe British direct military intervention, perhaps into Western Ukraine, right, as a to, to secure a safe zone or something of the sort. Now, I don't think it's on the tables immediately because. As far as the West is concerned, they have this fantasy that the Kiev is going to take Crimea in another few weeks or, or something like that. But let's say that now that Russia has gotten serious, uh, called up its reserves and taken other measures, let's say that in a year and a half, two years, Kiev uh, is threatened to be taken seriously, uh, surrounded or taken. And uh, let's say that uh, a... Zelensky uh, a government in exile or whoever is leading the country then sets up shop in West Ukraine or Poland. Then that suddenly becomes a very realistic scenario to justify. And we've heard from uh, the we've heard from um, 
the Polish foreign minister, Zbigniew Rao, this week, saying that if Russia, specifically, if Russia used a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, then NATO would attack Russian forces in Ukraine with overwhelming destructive force. Okay, I mean, you could try. Uh, but they're laying, you see, they're laying the seeds. They're, they're establishing another one of these red lines, right? Like uh, Obama did with chemical weapons in Syria. And then you had this jihadist uh, hoax, uh, this uh, Duma incident. And that was used by Trump to launch uh, airstrikes in Syria. Uh, and I see the potential here that they're doing the same thing just with a nuke instead of chemical weapons and with neo-Nazis instead of um, uh, jihadists. And like I said, they could be doing it. They could have do it themselves. They could simply make sure that a tactical nuke falls into Zelensky's or neo-Nazi hands um, or, um, you know, you know, uh, there's there's several potentials there for for that scenario. That could be dog whistle signaling. This is what you need to do to make sure that we can justify sending our troops into Ukraine. I don't think it's on the table now, but I, I see them building a narrative framework, a justification somewhere down the line for a direct intervention. Uh, so um, and what Zelensky did, you know, now uh, calling openly for a preemptive attack in the context, a it's clearly he meant a nuclear uh, first strike on Russia. He's demonstrated that he is not a rational actor because any rational actor, a state leader, recognizes that what that means is nuclear Armageddon, right? Because and, and Russia has. Let me ask this. Mark, do you think people in the U.S. were smacking their heads when Zelensky did that and are thinking, why are you saying that explicitly? Explicitly, you idiot. Do you think no, that's possible? I, 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 I don't think many people in the United States are thinking that. I think maybe some of your viewers are, Lee. But I think, first of all, most Americans will never hear that because the Western mainstream media is not reporting it. They're, they, I, the Hill in the U.S., I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with The Hill, one of the Washington, D.C. political papers, they actually put a deliberately they weren't even just trying to you know walk it back like biden has done with so many of his statements about china they actually deliberately mistranslate so that it's uh, that it said um because the, the way that the kid regime tried to walk it back is when he said preemptive strikes what he really meant was sanctions right that that's that's uh, what they're trying to walk it back and the hill had a direct mistranslation to to avoid the word strikes completely um so that kind of of uh damage control that kind of narrative management is now going on and most americans will never hear what Zelensky really said and most americans have already been so brainwashed at this point that they'll be like yeah yeah we should launch nuclear weapons at putin because he's a genocidal dictator or something like that I agree. Now, the reason I ask, though, is because early this week, the New York Times, which is the official, not official, I don't want to be, be a facetious, the New York Times, which is an establishment U.S. publication. In other words, the intelligence agencies 
use the New York Times to put stuff out. Yeah, they yeah one of the two story. papers of record, yes. Right. That, that the U.S. believes that Ukraine was behind the assassination of Dari Dugina. And that yeah, duh, they, duh. Like, like who didn't realize that? <laughs> well, but, but the significant thing to me is that they're admitting it, right? And so what does that say about the state of U.S.-Ukraine relations? Anything, Mark? Yeah. Um, so first of all, um, that it's a good it, it is a good question of why they chose to do that now. Uh, and they what yeah. they said, first of all, it wasn't it was anonymous sources, right? Anonymous intelligence sources naming some unnamed factions within the Kiev government, the Kiev regime. They didn't they didn't right. name who those factions were. So that may indicate that. Uh, you know, that they may be throwing one element of that regime under the bus. Um, that a limited hangout, if you will. Yeah, but I, I think it's more out of a pragmatic self-interest, right, um, for their client regime. Um, and, and in the piece, they said that they admonished the Kiev regime. They gave them a little slap on the wrist. Naughty, naughty. Don't you know it makes it really hard for us to do PR when you're assassinating uh, civilian female academics and journalists with car bombs, right? You know, oh, naughty, naughty. And even in when they were writing about this, these, these um, I don't know, uh, vile SOBs at the New York Times, these four journalists, Julian Barnes was one of them. There were three others. They um, referred to it still as the boldest action by Kiev to date. The boldest action. That's what they called the assassination of a young woman who had just finished her philosophy doctorate, right? They, they said it was a bold action. I was just so disgusted. Um, anyway, so, but they go on later in the piece to talk about how actually this is not the only such incident that the, the, the Kiev regime is conducting a systemic political assassination campaign in East Ukraine, right? They're killing all the uh, East Ukrainian politicians and authorities who side with Russia. And they're, they're assassinating them, you know, outright with, with bombings, with missiles. And it's actually gotten a lot nastier than that. They've been going after the families as well making sure that all the family members are killed as punishment, as demonstration. And uh, I've, I've, I've seen that one of them, him and his wife, uh, were both stabbed to death like many, many times. Right. So this is the type of political assassination. And suddenly they seem to have gotten con concerned that, hey, Russia could, you know, now that they're starting to take this seriously, they could decide to do the same things to our Kiev Putsch regime officials, right? If 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 political and and you have to remember that political assassinations of the leaders in Donbass have been going on for the eight years of the civil conflict. All of the original leaders uh, of the uh, uprising against the Putsch seizing power in Kiev, they're all dead, right? They were all killed years ago. Um, so this is a regular thing, but it's ta it's taken on, you know, a frenetic urgency like happening uh, s s such that the FSB actually finding a plot against one of the uh, leaders uh, in southern Ukraine who aligned with Russia 
Um, they they had to fake his death for a few weeks to keep him safe. Um, so that that kind of and then they came out and you know uh, demonstrated what what had been done and why. Um, this has been going on, and they're afraid that Russia may do the same thing back, and that they won't be able to stop and uh, Russia from you know assassinating um, Kiev regime officials and politicians in return. Um, and, and then, of course, that is an escalation cycle that where does that end? Then, Right. Uh, so I think that it's more out of their signaling. Uh, OK, uh, we're going to we're going to stop our client from doing any more of those. Uh, that's that's what I think that was about primarily. I don't think it represents any major rift between Kiev uh, and Washington. And they made it clear that this would not the U.S. admitting this would not interrupt the flow of weapons, of money, of intelligence, of CIA on the ground, of anything to uh, for the uh, support of the regime. So they can't be that concerned. So I, I would say the other thing that it implicitly reveals is that Ukraine carried out a terror attack on Russian soil, which is sure. a, a yeah. bigger deal, right? That's a big that's a big deal international politics wise. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's I mean it it was essentially in Moscow just on the outskirts of, Mo- of Moscow, the capital city itself, yes. Yes. Now, you're an expert on the work of Alexander Dugin, uh Darg Dugin's father and the Russian intellectual. And in fact, you translated his book The Fourth Political Theory. Uh, and so I want to ask you a question about Dugan and his thought. The recent speech by Putin, where he discussed not only the joining of those four territories to Russia, but he also talked about anti-colonialism. Does that speech actually, here's a dumb question at first, a simple one. Does that speech have a name? Because I never know what to call it. I call it. Putin's recent speech. Does it have a name officially? No, no, it doesn't really have a name. You could say that it is the speech on the incorporation of Donetsk, Lugansk, Kherson, and Zaporozhye into the Russian Federation, if you want. I mean, it, it, it is available. If someone wants to read the speech, by the way, it is available on uh, the English version of the Presidents of Russia uh, website. Uh, the whole transcripts yes. of that and all of his major speeches are up there, so you can go and read it for yourself. And I would suggest people do that. Now, the the reason I, I refer to it as the Putin anti-colonial speech, but that's not exactly fully accurate because he does talk about other things. But do you think it's fair to yes. say it's a Putin anti-colonial speech? It, that Is was that- a big... Uh, notable element of this speech where he specifically used those words he was referring to russia's actions in ukraine as essentially thwarting what is a another act of colonialism if you wanted to say neo-colonialism by the west in ukraine and i i think when he was saying this of course he was not only talking to a domestic audience but i think he was specifically talking to the people of africa of South America, of um, uh, Eastern Asia, who have been victims of Western colonialism 
and and who are very they you know they they don't want to take sides in this thing they 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 are not abiding by the u.s sanctions even though the u.s keeps threatening them you know and they are not stopping trade with russia and i think he's appealing to them saying you know i i think you recognize what is being done here and now this process that what we are fighting in ukraine is very similar to uh you know what has been done to you in the past and that in many ways you are still suffering the results of uh decades later uh, so I, I think that was a big part of that speech, yes. And so so it occurred to me that since I'm lucky enough to be able to talk to you, an expert on Dugan's work and the translator of the fourth political theory, to ask you a simple question. What does Dugan say in his work about colonialism? I assume he addresses that at some point. Anything yeah. relevant? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, Dugan... Dugan wrote a lot and he talked a lot and I'm sure that colonialism popped up in some of his, you know, his works that are so voluminous that I certainly could not claim to be an expert on all of them. And a lot of them early on in his career that he himself has said, well, you know, I don't, I don't agree with anything I said back then. Um, he, um, I, I certainly, I, I mean, I haven't even bothered to read those, um, a lot of those. Uh, so um, it wasn't, you know, talking about colonialism per se was not a big element of of Dugan's, you know, uh, worldview of his of his politics. Not in those words, at least. I do not think this was a Dugan speech, right? And uh, this has again, Putin never spoke to Dugan at least not before his daughter was assassinated. They, not on the phone, not in person. Putin has never once uh, uh, mentioned Dugan or any of his unique political ideas, right? A lot of Russian political thinkers have a lot of similar ideas with variations. He never, never once. Um, uh, Dugan is not Putin's brain. He has no influence in the Kremlin. He was a marginal political figure. Uh, and in, in fact, at, at, at one point in 2014, the Kremlin even pushed to get him fired uh, from his position in the sociology faculty of, of uh, Moscow State University, where I was teaching at the time as well. Uh, so, right. no. So you knew Dugan at the time. He, they were yes. pushing to get him fired. And yes. I'm sure you, you saw how he dealt with that. He did not feel at that time he was Putin's puppet, obviously. When no, he, no. I mean, if, if Dugan has wrote books very critical of Putin. I mean, where one where he talked about Putin versus Putin, talking about the contrary influences, political and you know uh, influences of the man and on the man. Um, at the end of this speech, Putin did actually mention by name one of his actual political uh, philosophers that he puts a, a you know a political scientist, political thinkers that he does actually put a lot of thinking, which is Ivan Ilyin, uh, whom it was a, um, you know, uh, end of the uh, 19th century, uh, major Russian conservative in, in that, not, not in the modern American sense, but, you know, in, in for, for a Russian uh, milieu of the time. Uh, and uh, he mentioned a, a quote 
by Ivan Ilyin, basically about Russian patriotism. Um, and that was a part of his speech. And that, if, if anything, is, you know, the political a part of the political inspiration of Putin and that speech, not not Alexander Dugan. So what did you did you think that Putin's focus on colonialism was warranted and proper? Uh, what did you think of that, Mark? Um, it's not the words I would have used. Not at the time. I, I that's not quite the, the stance of the argument that I would have taken. Um, you know, I'm not the president of Russia, but you know, those, those are, what you know, in, in some ways he, you know, he made a big part of this speech, kind of some of his best hits critique of the West and, you know, this whole involvement in Ukraine and Russia for a long period of time. And, uh, I, uh, I, I would have used different words and I would have had a slightly different focus if it was up to me, but you know. He's the president, and that's the way he wanted to frame it, and that's what he did. So I'd like you to find out what that is, but we'll save it for next time because it's getting late where you are, Mark. It's almost midnight in Moscow, so we'll let you go. Thanks so much for offering your insight on that and other subjects. Mark Sabata, thanks so much. Great appearance, Mark, as usual. Talk to you later. Thanks for having me, Lee. Thank you. you bet. And let's take a short break on the backstory, and when we come back, We'll go from the abortion rapper to Kanye rapping about Jared Kushner, although he's just talking. There's no rapping, actually. So don't worry. Up next on The Backstory. Backstory 105.5 FM AM 1390 is where you can get the truth in Washington, D.C. on the airwaves on Radio Sputnik all day. So, Rod, we should get to the clip first because this is a big clip, right? The Kanye one, yeah, yeah, it's, it's about five minutes, but I think it, I think it was great because he uh. He poops on uh, Jared Kushner, and uh, I think Donald Trump's going to have to answer for a lot of this. Yes, and and w- so let's get to that clip right away since it's so long, and we want to get to the breaks appropriately. Let's play the clip. This is Kanye West. You've heard of him. Kanye West, Kim Kardashian's ex-husband. I think he's known for some other things, too. But Kanye West talking about Jared Kushner and Trump. Hit it. Yeah, you know, I had a dinner with Ivanka, Jared, and Josh. And a couple days later, I found out that Josh Kushner had 10% of Skims, which is a line that I had developed with Kim. And I had a lot of issues with the imagery of, of Skims. I felt like there was a, a lot of imagery that was overly sexualized and things that I wouldn't want to see my wife and definitely not my daughters doing in the future in order to sell product. Uh, but it, it reaches another level 
when it's like, okay, well, this is what my wife is doing, and this is what they're doing for, this is what she's doing for our children. But it reaches another level when her business partners are selling pieces of company that they don't have to because the company's already so successful and it's an internet-based company. So it's like they're really just selling off the company in order to create more relationships for themselves that are unneeded. It's like when I went to The Gap and with our release, they just like... Uh, they shoveled it out. I'm very cautious with my words. I'm really big on being able to have an adult conversation in front of the children. So I, I don't use explicit language uh, in interviews, especially. So I found out after this dinner that Josh Kushner had 10% of skims and I had 5% of skims. And regardless if you know, Josh Kushner figured out how to put $150 million, I'm sure it wasn't out of his own account, but $150 million, and I'm sure Jared still has a piece of that fund. Uh, they, uh, regardless of them putting that money in, for me to have been an owner in it and not known, just from a place as a, as a creative where Skims is so based on a lot of the easy ideas, then it's based on all of the relationships in fashion because I had to use my relationships in fashion in order to establish Kim in a way where fashionable people say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm down to wear Kim's line. And these VCs, they come in and they get a piece of it after the fact and they run around and say they have ownership in it. So as I put on my Instagram, which... You know, luckily for everyone, they could just write it off that, you know, I'm crazy until they see my disposition in this interview, and then it's going to get scary. Uh, they, um, um, I said, hey, Josh, what if, uh, what if I had 10% of Carly Kloss's lingerie shapewear swimsuit line, and you have 5% of it, and you didn't know? How would that make you feel? And then after talking to them and really sitting with Jared and sitting with Josh and finding out other pieces of information, I was like, wow, these guys might have really been holding Trump back and being very much a handler right then. They love to just look at me or look at Trump like we're so crazy and that they're the businessmen. So when I think about all of these things that Jared, you know, somehow doesn't get enough credit for with his work. And what is it? His work in Israel or his work in Palestine? What, what is this? You know where he made these peace treaties? Where was that? Do you know the facts on this right here? So I'm like... Well, I think that was between Israel and, and some of the Arab nations. I just think it was to make money. I don't know. Is that, is that too heavy-handed to put on this platform? No, that's, that's your opinion. We're not in the censorship business. Okay, thank you. And I just think that that's what they're about, is making money. I don't think that they have the ability to make anything on their own. I think they were born into money, has really built something from nothing. When I sit across the table from a Josh Kushner and he just feels so entitled to that idea and this person has never brought anything of value other than so-called being a good venture capitalist I have a major I have a major issue with that and in my boy Trump 
the way we could have because, you know, Trump wanted nothing but the best for this country. So there you go. Now, I assume when Yeezy's talking about Josh Kushner, that's Jared, right, right, Rod? No, that's that's Josh's brother. Okay. I don't keep track of Kushner's enough. So I thought that might have been a nickname or something. But that was a great clip. And I, you know what? Let's do this young man a favor. See if you can get Kanye West on the backstory, Rod. <laughs> I'll see what I can do, Lee. <laughs> okay, no, I'm, I'm, I'm serious in a sense. If you say the guy who used to be lead investor reporter at Breitbart and worked for Steve Bannon, I might sound pretty good. Does that make sense? And I think Kanye, the reason he's called crazy is because do you think just in theory, Kanye would appear on Radio Sputnik? I don't think oh, he's no, a guy. Sure. I don't think he's a guy who turned it down just because it's Radio Sputnik. Does that make sense? No, I think he would do the opposite. I think he's like, oh, this is um, you, I'm going to be heard in Russia and, and, and in America at the same time. Like, oh, yeah, for sure. I'll do it. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. So I wouldn't say don't get Ben Stiller. You, you know, Ben Stiller is not going to be on our show. Do you agree? No, he's fighting for Ukraine, Lee. So, no, he wouldn't come on. Right. And you, uh, too, is unlikely, too. But Yeezy, Ye, on the other hand, I'm serious. I don't know how to do it. Obviously, if anybody's going to hook up to Kanye, but I would love to have him on the show because I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to say hippity hop, by the way. Don't worry about that. I'm a pro. So I make the jokes when they're appropriate. But uh, I like Kanye West, and I've defended him a number of times on the show. Once I brought Kanye, and uh, when I was doing a show with Garland Nixon, do you remember hearing this? Garland called Kanye crazy. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. a lot of people call him crazy. I mean, look, uh, I'm not here to... Uh, make fun of people's personal decisions who want who they want to be with. But to me, just this is just my personal preference. You're a little crazy if you want to be with Kim Kardashian after you know how she became famous. But besides that, as as music and fashion, you can't be crazy and be that organized. No, no, I, and and a lot of my heroes are crazy. I mean, if you look at their personal lives or whatever, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Uh, you you can't judge somebody. By one aspect, there can be people with a great personal life, but they've done nothing in their life. Does that make sense? They have a great marriage, but they haven't achieved anything in business or society or whatever. But they have a good marriage. So good for them. I'm not saying they should necessarily trade one for the other. But Ye's, you know, Kanye is someone who is undoubtedly made a big impact. And I understand your reticence about Kim Kardashian, and he might not go back and do it either. But there's no doubt that he was very smart from a business perspective to hook up with Kim Kardashian. It made him much more famous. Do you agree, Rod? Yeah, and he made her, like he talked about in, in this uh, in this clip, you know, it made her more into like a fashion into the fashion world and um you know that's that's crazy if you think about it a rapper who's you know started out you know in a sense from nothing 
to being a part of the fashion world over in Europe and Paris. Um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of tried, but only Kanye is the one to succeed. Yeah, no, it, although it's interesting how many hip hop artists have succeeded in various businesses. I was thinking about this because I was watching YouTube the other day and they fed me a video by a guy named Robert Greene. Robert Greene is an author who wrote uh, The 47 Immutable Laws of Power. And I knew Robert Greene when I wrote at HuffPo. I talked to him on the phone a number of times. And he wrote a book with Fiddy. Did you know that? The, the I forget what it's called. but the 50 Laws of Power, I believe. Right, right, yeah. It was called 50 something and Laws of Power. We might try to get him on the show. Robert Greene's a very smart guy, not Fiddy, because I, I never talked to Fiddy. But Robert Greene, we might try to get on the show. And we'll have more. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, more hip-hop talk on The Backstory. time for the second hour and the final hour of the week but show that brings you the truth behind the headlines this is the backstory and a great appearance by mark slobora always like talking to mark and did you learn something about the russian flag rod yeah that the eagles are looking to the east and the west because that's where they have to uh, you know they have to guard themselves which is which is interesting to know no, right. That's very interesting. I I didn't know about the part that it connected to the Orthodox Church either. Did you? No, I, I had no idea. I just my my take is that I think it's pretty, and uh, the eagle being on there, the Russian flag that's just the tricolors, the white, red, and blue. I'm afraid. A lot of dumb Americans, if I had that flag, they wouldn't know what it was. They might think it's, I don't know, name a country, Brazil, New Zealand. Do, do you see my fear? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I got you on that one, With the eagles. Better. That's what the eagles, yeah, the, the eagles look better. Yeah, I think so. And because the purpose of the flag is decorative for me, but I was afraid that I'd maybe you know, not done my research. And so I had a flag that some people might go, why you got that flag? And I say, what? And then they tell me something horrifying about it. But sure enough, there's nothing horrifying and I like my flag. So thanks to Mark Slobona for making me feel less nervous. And a great appearance otherwise too. Mark Slobona, he's an independent thinker. Anyone who thinks that this show is a Putin puppet, has not listened to Mark Sabata. Would you agree with that, Rod? Oh yeah, 100%. The, uh, he, I mean, obviously he didn't say he totally disagreed with the speech, but you know, uh, parts of it he did disagree. So, um, you know, he's not 100% allegiance with uh, Putin. Well, he's not a raving fanboy. Let me put it like that. Is it fair to say Mark Sabata is not a raving fanboy of Vladimir Putin? Oh yeah, he's far from that, he's far from that. But, but he likes him, and, and uh, I'm more of a raving fanboy, I'll admit it. 
But coming up this hour, the great Daniel Czar. And we'll talk about all kinds of stuff going on in the world with Daniel. And we're taking your calls at 202-521-1320. And Rod, take us out with the final boom of the week. What's the name of the show, Rod? You're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. Okay, and now online, 202-521-1320. Hippity hop expert, the great owl killer. Owl killer, what's on your mind, sir? What do you think of Yeezy, by the way? James, you're like tormenting my eardrums. He said it like three times in an interview. He's calling himself Yay, and you keep butchering his name. But uh, anyhow, man, Tucker is knocking it out of the park with these interviews um, this week. Now, one thing you say, you, you find it a little weird, or not weird, but like the amount of hip-hop people that are able to like do really good in the business world, I actually think... I don't. Let me clarify. I don't find it weird. I find it notable. Yeah. Because, you know, I get, that's all. Notable. Yeah, and you, and you know something? It's, I mean, at the end of the day, music and, you know, hip-hop, because it, it's, more, it's more individual, what more is, what can be more capitalistic than you making music, you writing your own lyrics, even though Kanye West does have ghostwriters, but you're, you're making songs that people want to buy, and they're voting, the consumers voting you rich with their dollars. So I think they get... Somewhat, I agree. So much of hip-hop is marketing, pure marketing. That's what you're saying, essentially. Right, Al Killer? No, I, absolutely, but I, I think it's some of the purest form of capitalism in the sense that the mar- the consumer votes you rich by with your with their purchases they vote you a star, and when you under like because I, I remember when Kanye West really blew up and they didn't want him to rap. I mean, he pro- he the blueprint that uh, he produced for Jay Z produced more than half the tracks on that album. I mean. He, he was he was about to be he was going to be a on Dr. Dre level in terms of production and no he was determined to be a rapper and you know people didn't see his vision but he did and he stuck with it and I'll I'll never forget that song um through the wire where he samples um Shaka Khan through the fire and you know he's rapping it after he had gotten into a car accident and his jaws wired shut so I mean. The guy's determined. I mean, when you see him talking to Tucker, does the guy sound crazy to you? No. He probably has a 150, 180 IQ. Um, and I I just don't, I think at some times, artists like that, the world's not ready for. Um, but clearly, he's at a point where there's nothing you can do to him. He's self-made. He doesn't owe anybody anything. And that is that is why they... But I almost think like the more they attack him, the more they're going to wake people up because he's got a follow. He doesn't just have a hip hop following. He's got a fashion following. He's got, you know, the- well, you, you're Al killer. So what the two words Kanye's looking for, but he doesn't know he's looking for are genie energy. If he wants to understand Jared Kushner and it being all about the money for him, do you agree? Kanye needs to know the two words, genie energy, to understand Jared Kushner. Do you, do you, do you understand what I mean by that, Al Killer? I, I, would, I would 
two to one, I say he, he knows about it. He just didn't know if he was allowed to say it. That, that's why he asked Tucker if, he's allowed, if he was allowed to comment on, you know, are you, you know and Tucker's like, no, no, it's your opinion. You know, we, we're not censorship here. But Kanye hangs out with, yeah. with uh, Elon Musk. Kanye hangs out with Elon Musk. There's very little going on that he doesn't, he doesn't know. He's, he's very, he's much, and he's an avid Alex Jones listener, by the way. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if you were able to get him on. Just promise him you're not going to censor him. You, you probably could get him on. Well, you know that. And you know we wouldn't censor him. But I really doubt that he knows anything about gene energy because that story has been buried so much. So I think if he understood that Jared started a war to make money through gene energy, a lot of things would fall into place for Kanye. What do you think, Al Killer? I, why I think he knows about it is because I think when he looked at, when he realized that uh, Josh Kushner had the 10% stake in the clothing line that he created for his wife, I, w- I don't think he just stopped there. Okay, he just has a clothing line. What else does this guy have? And that's why he brought up the Trump issue that he was at. Like, he, he basically, they were his handlers and they were holding him back and sabotaging him because that's exactly what Peter Navarro said was that they have so many good deals laid out and then by that they thought were wrapped up. And as soon as they leave and, you know, he finishes his dinner with Jared the next morning, it's, it's polar opposite. So clearly Kanye West knows where, for someone that didn't really hang around the White House that often, he knew where, uh, you know, what were Trump's limitations. And unfortunately, everybody has a... Yeah, I, I don't. I I think that they, those were his uh, Achilles heel. Um, Jericho. And of course, I'll ta- I'll take credit for the fact that on my shows on Sputnik, I've been saying that for several years, because Bannon got that word to me that yeah. he would leave. Bannon would leave the table, and Ivanka and Jared were sitting there, and then he'd come back the next day, and everything was different with Trump. So I've talked about that before Navarro was uh, on this show. So I'm just taking credit for that. Alcala, go ahead. No, Lee, you you pretty much we, we you could have basically quoted like you could have predicted the future of what was going to happen just off of the stuff that you you were able to lay out. Um, do you think Bannon did they leave on bad terms or was that was that a show? No, I think they genuinely left on bad terms. I would love to talk to talk to Bannon over drinks, basically. If I could ever find out from Bannon what his real deal is, and you, you know what I mean, talk to him over drinks, man to man, just saying to him, I would say to him, and I mean this, I would say, this won't go anywhere, Steve. I just want to know for myself what side you're on, because I'm... I see the contradictions of Bannon. On one hand, he talks a very good game. And I know him well enough where I believe he's a patriot on some level. But I also believe he's a patriot who wanted to get rich and saw he did. Goldman, Goldman Sachs as a way. Does that make sense, Al Killer? Why I believe it's a contradiction with Bannon. And he's a patriot on one hand. And I think that's legit. But I also think he's a sellout. And I think that's legit. Does that make sense? Yes, for sure. He is such a 
it's such a dichotomy with him because you can't ignore the Goldman Sachs background. And that's why I asked you, is he deep state or not? And I, I still want to know what went on with that 16-hour uh, Epstein interview because we deserve that. We're owed that. But it, it, neither here nor there. Every, when he gives speeches, he understands everything. Like he, and, but, and he understands, you know, he's been hitting the Federal Reserve, and he was talking about you're not going to be able to, he even talks about how they're going to be paying back reparations. You're not going to be able to make a, a finance charge for clicking a mouse, you know, and sending a transfer. Like the, fi- the financial elite of this, of this country and the world have, have destroyed the world. But when I, I saw his speech at CPAC the other day, or a couple weeks ago, I mean, right. it's mind-blowing how much he grasped. And he's not up there with a the teleprompter. Now, he may have some prompts here or there, but he gets it. I mean, he can quote a chapter, chapter and verse, and Trump doesn't have and, it. Has. And obviously— And see, and see, don't forget, I've talked to Bannon multiple times, one-on-one, no one else in the room. So I know the way he talks in that circumstance, and he says nothing bad, nothing you disagree with. He's not—he does not say, no one's around, Lee, so I'm really a neocon. Does that make sense? So I, I got to go uh, because we have a lot of calls. But great call, Owl Killer. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you again sometime soon. 202-521-1320. Let's first go to Tarif. What's on your mind? Thank you, Lee, for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free doing the signs. I have three comments. First comment is this. Tomorrow, October the 8th, uh, is uh, Stella Martin and the rest of the Rick Leaks crew. Is going to um, circle the the Burmese no the parliament in in Britain. It is estimated to be five thousand people going to do it, and also going to have different parts on the planet. People going to do the same thing, dealing with their part on parliament. So, everybody tune in to that tomorrow. Second comment is this: Kim dot com uh, wrote some interesting about Elon Musk dealing with the um, settlement. I mean, dealing with the um, that he got to um, come up with the money they pay Twitter. He said, as soon as, as Elon has control of Twitter, his tech team can data mine the database and identify all the bots. Then he can sue the beneficiaries of the transaction for damages. Then he go on to say that the advertisers, who's that's on Twitter, right, who have been overcharged for fake ad impressions, can then get a partial refund from Twitter and Elon can sue those responsible for damages. So, basically... After um, he get his, his stuff from, he, he buy Twitter, he can turn around and show proof, hey, we got bots here. You know what I'm saying? Then he can, he can sue him, take him to court and sue him. My last comment is dealing with the Starlink with um, Elon on is having problems over Ukraine. It's, it's reported that Russia is starting to jam the miniature satellites that's in space. That's um, communicating with the um, Ukrainian um, soldiers. Russia's doing something to the satellites now. They might be hitting them with some or some type of technology. We don't know. But, yeah, that's my three comments for this. Because, for taking my- un- unfortunately, for his sake, and we expect a lot of Elon Musk news in the next week. Do you expect a lot of Elon news coming out in the next couple of weeks, Rod? Yeah, and going along with what Tarif was saying, yeah, I, I was hearing that too as well. As, as well, Starlink is uh, being interfered with, or they're having problems. So, yeah, I was. Well, I was is, a friend of mine pointed out. Remember, Elon said something about Ukraine Russia a 
few days ago. He thinks that was because of Starlink. Basically, Ukraine has made Elon Musk billions of dollars in satellites, a fair target for Russia. Do you see that? By Oh, yeah, 100%. And so he made a statement trying to, I think, say to Russia, I'm not your enemy. Me personally, Elon Musk, I'm not. I want peace. And that's why he made that proposal. But I think Ukraine is getting Elon in trouble. And I'm not surprised Russia's acting as though, you know, his technology, it's being used against Russian citizens. Does that make sense? Yeah, I believe it's one of their last uh, internet uh, uses over there because all the other uh, communications have been struck. So it's one of their last uses of uh, to communicate and find, you know, GPS as well. So, yeah, but yeah, uh, it has been a uh, bit interfered with and, you know, we're going to be hearing a lot of from Elon. And do you know what I think would be a good market for Elon, for Starlink? Russia, a big country and lots of rural parts that are hard to get internet to. I think Starlink would be a good fit. Elon, make a deal. But by the way, you can come on the show too, Elon, with Kanye. But Elon, a good market for you for your Starlink service would be Russia. Do you agree with that, Rod? Then we'll get to more calls. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I think that'd be uh, I think that'd be a layup, and I think uh, Putin and the Russian Federation would uh, welcome him. Yes, indeed, and they'd be better to do business with because they're not bombing nuclear power plants or stirring nuclear wars, which is good for business. So two hundred two five two one thirteen twenty. Speaking of the Assange event tomorrow, everyone get out there and be active. Do what you can. On that tip, Ingrid from D.C., you're on the air. What, what are you thinking, Ingrid? Well, thanks, Lee, and shout out to Tarif. Um, I just want to slip in. I, I missed the first half of your show. I don't know if you mentioned that Roger Waters was on Joe Rogan, came out yesterday for over two hours. Uh, incredible. Anyway, um, the— I missed that. No, no, I didn't see it. I'll look it up, though. Yeah, micro protest. The uh, a circle of the globe is underway. Misty Winston uh, did a tweet. Comrade Misty, is is that Comrade Misty? Comrade Misty, Putin's buddy, and her uh, handle is sarcasm stardust. She came out with a tw- uh, tweet with hashtag surround the globe for Assange. The new number four. And she's already gotten some response, someone saying thanks for doing this for those of us who can't make it to any of the protests. Tarif could kick this off. I think it would be great if we had people, wherever they are, just putting on a sign. And, you know, you wouldn't even have to have your face in it, but just have a sign that would say, say, New Orleans for Assange and tweet that out. And then we would have this dimension of people all over the world tweeting out for Assange. So I'm, uh, you know, in a low-key way excited. It, this is, you know, this isn't actually a picture yet, but it is getting it started with a great hashtag, surround the globe for Assange. That's great. And you know I've got the lawn chair. So I'm, and by the way, 
anyone has seen me in my lawn chair, we recently upgraded the lawn chair. I got a bigger, more comfortable one since I sit out there so much. So we'll be doing activism for Assange tomorrow. And you're suggesting I use what hat? Hashtag? Say it again, Ingrid. Surround the globe for Assange. Okay. That's what we'll be doing. And, and remember, tomorrow, let's get as many people out there. And by the way, one other thing, great calling, Ingrid. Thanks so much. And uh, uh, we want everybody to do two things. One, get out there for Assange tomorrow. If you're listening to my voice, commit to do one act of protest or awareness to raise awareness about Julian Assange. And especially if you're in Virginia, because as Ingrid's pointed out, that's where juries are going to be picked from. So especially in Virginia, but I'm going to do it here in South Dakota because I'm here. So uh, the other thing to do, and again, hats off to Jamal for being so good at this. I'll remind people on social media, like this, subscribe, and tell your friends about the backstory. We're trying to do something different and trying to do something that brings you the truth every day. And also some stupid jokes. You know, I get those in there. Let's go to a call from another part of our backstory community. Brave from Atlanta, 202-521-1320. Brave, you're on. Hey, how's it going, Lee? Um, shout out to Ingrid. I uh, my Twitter follow my Twitter actually ain't that great. My Instagram is pretty deep. I um I put it on my Instagram as well. Um, for Assange. Great. Um, I wanted to bring up because you said that um that Daniel was always going to be on on the show. Um, he was on the uh, he was on fault lines with Jamaro and uh, Reese Everson and uh, Malik Abdul. I think it was on Thursday, and they were talking about January sixth. Um, Reese brought up the point that it's literally in the Constitution um, about um, about the people rising up against our government. When we feel like we feel like our government is becoming fascist or, or not representing us and all and all of that, right? Um, which I think is a valid point, right? Um, but Daniel Lazar, who, whose um, commentary I, I, I do enjoy, he um, his response to that was because you know, as you know, Daniel Lazar is not for the Constitution. He feels like it should be eradicated. I think I believe in something else should be put in place or at least revamped, right? Because he thinks it's outdated. Um, he he was his response to what she said, which which is what I believe to be a valid point, was that again the Constitution um, was put together by you know a bunch of rich white dudes back in the day, true, um, and that it hasn't. Um, had to go through the test of time as far as, you know, the place that we are in in America now. Um, I, I think that's valid as well, but I just don't think that that's an adequate response to the point that she that she raised, right? Because it literally is in the Constitution that the people should rise up against the government if they feel the government is getting out of control, right? Or or um, or becoming fascist, right? And so I, I, I don't know what all topics you guys will, will um, get into, but I was hoping you could um, bring it up to him and get him to either go uh, to, to address that specific point because they didn't have enough time for him to get back into it on fault lines. Well, actually, brave, brave. Let me make this suggestion. Do me a favor. Can you call back during Daniel's segment and ask him yourself? Because I don't want to screw it up. Sure. So we'll take your call. Normally, we it's one caller per person per day, but we'll take your call. 
I wouldn't do you like that, Brave. I wouldn't tell you to call back and then say, no, don't, don't take the call. So we'll have you ask Daniel Zarr yourself, and that'd be great. All right, that's what's up. I appreciate it, man. I will do that. Thanks a lot. Okay, thanks, Brave. He's going to call us back at 202-521-1320. And Command Central, let me know when Brave calls back, and we'll get to one question to Daniel first, and then a follow-up from Brave. Hopefully, hopefully it'll all work out. But uh, because we have, you know, we've got so much to talk to Daniel Zari about. I think the other thing that's big news that's going to play out over time is that Saudi Arabia, again, let me use the term, let me sound hip. Saudi Arabia dissing the Biden administration. And why is I say that is the Biden administration flew to Saudi Arabia, tried to get Saudi Arabia to increase their oil production a few months ago. And Saudi Arabia basically came out yes, a couple of days ago and said, we're cutting oil production by 2 million barrels, which will have the opposite effect that the Biden administration wanted. Now, I think that's a significant story because it shows a split between the Saudis and the U.S. government that I think will have long-term consequences. And I don't know exactly what that will be because I'm not a fan of Saudi Arabia. And, uh, but on the other hand, I don't think the U.S. should be in the business of trying to get other company, countries to raise or lo- lower the price of oil to hurt another country. So how significant, Rod, do you think the Saudi defying the Biden administration, I'll use that term, another D, D word, yes or defy, the Saudi Arabia defying the U.S. is? How, Rod, what do you think? You see, I think- you see, see what I'm saying about it's going to have consequences? Yeah, no, I think uh, if we go back a few years, you know, uh, Donald Trump was uh, greeted with, a, you know, a big uh, hoorah and, you know, he was touching the orb and all this other stuff while Biden's over there begging for oil and then they come back and give him the finger. The oily finger. So let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk to the great Daniel Czar here on The Backstory. Backstory and on the radio in the capital of the Empire of Lies, Washington, D.C., on 105.5 FM and AM 1390, blasting the truth out over the airwaves. Joining us now is a great friend of the show and a very smart guy, Daniel Czar. Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing great. So I want to utilize your big brain for a second because you, you know a lot of stuff. And, you know, sometimes I use your intelligence to make myself a little smarter. So I was watching Putin's speech a few days ago. And you know the one, it does not have a name, but the one where he announced that four territories were now part of Russia. And he also talked about colonialism. 
You saw that speech, right, Daniel? Sure, sure. So what I want to ask you about is on a theoretical basis. I know that Lenin wrote about the connection between colonialism, which was a big topic for Putin, and capitalism, right? It's one of his most famous essays, right? Correct. Now, let me ask you, how do you account for the fact that the Roman Empire existed before modern capitalism? How does how do you in other words, I think some people view Lenin's statement as saying capitalism creates colonialism. But I'm saying there are examples of empire and colonialism before capitalism. So what would your response, because I'm sure, I'm sure you, you're a smart guy. You've thought about this. Has this topic come up before? Well, sure. I mean, I mean, empires go back thousands of years. I mean, even before Rome, there were empires. I mean, empires in which uh, a, a, a great power would subdue other nations and, uh, and treat them harshly and, and, you know, and steal their wealth, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but um, what capitalism saw, uh, I mean, starting in the, uh, in the, uh, in the, as early as the, the 15th century, in sort of pre-capitalist days, but really reaching a frenzy in the 19th century, uh, was a vast explosion of a new kind of capitalist imperialism. I mean, the carve-up of, of Africa was amazing. In a space of a few years, uh, European powers carved up an entire continent. You know, just, just you know, held a conference in, in Berlin, you know, you, know, uh, you know, took out a map, uh, you know, drew lines on it and said, okay, you get this, you get this, you get this, etc. So it was at a vastly, you know, increased scale, you know, far beyond what the Romans would ever have dreamed. Now, now Daniel, uh, speaking of which, one country that was created in the beginning of the 20th century was Saudi Arabia. And they were news lately because they're not doing what Biden wanted and decreasing yeah. oil, increasing oil production. But how significant do you consider the Saudis defying the Biden administration in the history of U.S.-Saudi relationships? And again, I know you're no fan of Saudis like, like, like me, but do you view that as a significant change in U.S. foreign policy and alliances? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a big change. Yes, it's a big change. I mean, I mean, but first of all, you know, the same thing happened in 1973 and, and four when the Saudis led, you know, the first OPEC uh, oil embargo and jacked up prices, but what, what fourfold and threw the entire Western economies into a into a profound recession. So it's not unprecedented. You know, and in that case, if I recall correctly, uh, Nixon and Kissinger actually discussed you know, sending paratroopers into the uh, Saudi Arabia to seize the oil field. But they decided that would be crazy. And what they did instead is they sort of, you know, restructured the relationship and welcomed the, uh, the Saudi royal family into the Western family and nations on a new basis, uh, more of a partnership, I would say, I guess. Um, you know, and I expect that, you know, the, 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 look, America, Washington needs the Saudi. Because the Saudis provide an important part of the machinery for the control of the Persian Gulf. So, so the U.S. is not going to jeopardize that relationship despite the storm over, uh, over Mohammed bin Salman, you know, jack, you know uh, cutting production in hope of uh, 
of raising uh, prices. Uh, you know, but I expect that the, the Saudi-U.S. relationship will go on for better or for worse for some time to come. Now, Daniel, one of our great callers, Brave from Atlanta, had a question for you. So I told him to call back and ask you the question himself. So let, let's go. 202-521-1320. Brave, you have a question for Daniel Czar. Go ahead. Uh, hi, Daniel. Uh, first, it's a, uh, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. I, I enjoy your commentary. Um, Thank I, you. You were on the um, you were on fault lines. Uh, it was Thursday, I believe it was Thursday morning. And you guys were discussing January 6th and Reese Everson. Um, she brought up the point that the uh, Constitution, Second Amendment, um, uh, gives the right, or, or I guess it, it it stops the uh, government from infringing upon the citizens' right to um, obviously bear arms and to uh, have, have the militia and everything like that, right? Um, but I guess her, just to sum it up, her, her um, initial her, her point was that um, it's literally in the Constitution, the citizens' rights to raise up against, to, to come together and raise up against the government if they feel the government is uh, becoming uh, fascist or, you know, um, oppressive or whatever the case is. Um, you, you responded to her at that time of um, saying that the, the Constitution, you know, was was brought together by a bunch of rich old white men, which is true, and that it basically didn't, um, ha- hasn't had a chance to, it, it, I guess it wouldn't stand up to the test of time as far as the times that we find ourselves in. And uh, paraphrasing, obviously, so, so forgive me if I'm butchering the point. My, my question to you is, um, because you guys didn't have enough time to go further into it, because I, I felt like that point is valid, but it didn't really address what she was saying as far as the constitutionality of the citizens' right to rise up against our government when we feel that our government is no longer listening to us or working for us. And I wanted to get your opinion on that, uh, your expanded opinion on that specifically, if you, if you remember the uh, conversation you guys were having. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember very well. I mean, I mean, her point, I mean, first of all, uh, um, uh, I mean, I think it's, I think it's implicit that, that, that the people everywhere, anywhere, have a right to rise up against a, an oppressive dictatorial government. Uh, so if Americans, you know, if America, the American government becomes, you know, even more oppressive and dictatorial than it is now, then certainly the people have a right to, uh, to resist by, you know, by all means, any means necessary. And that's, that's regardless of whether there's a language in the, in the uh, Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, you know, regardless. Um, but uh, the Second Amendment is a, is a, a different ball of wax because the Second Amendment kind of, uh, well, it, it essentially is a very powerful law against any kind of meaningful gun uh, control uh, at all. And um, when they say that people should be able to resist oppressive government, it doesn't necessarily mean by force of arms, because the people can't prevail against the U.S. military. It means that people should be able to, to resist the government uh, through things like strikes, uh, demonstrations, uh, uh, civil disobedience, uh, et cetera, et cetera. A bunch of middle-aged militia members, you know, carrying guns in the suburban Virginia. I mean, they're not going to—they're not a threat to the government, really. They're just kind of a, you know, I don't know what they are. They're kind of a, a momentary irritant, but that's all. I mean, so, uh, so I, I mean, I think the Second Amendment is a is a a, a terribly outmoded law. Uh, it should be uh, revised uh, very thoroughly, um, but the present Constitution makes that essentially impossible. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. 
I don't want to take up too much more. I, I can have like a thousand more questions, but I don't want to take up too much more time. Thank you very much for entertaining my question. And I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Brave. Great job, Brave. So, Daniel, let me ask you another question. I, I'm, I think I and a lot of our audience views the Biden administration as a dangerous uptick authoritarian power of the U.S. government. How do you feel about that? Do you feel the Biden administration is doing anything that people should be really concerned about? Oh, yeah, definitely. No question about it. I mean, I think people should be concerned about everything that's happening in Washington, where the, where the machinery of government is, uh, is falling apart quite visibly. Uh, and as a result, uh, the, uh, the government is behaving in ever more erratic uh, and dangerous ways. The question is, how do we combat that? Well, no, and I think on tactics, uh, I, I agree with you on tactics, actually. I, I'm a, in favor of the Second Amendment, and I think it can be useful. But you're right. A bunch of middle-aged, or as I call them, young whippersnappers, because I'm old, <laughs> uh, uh, guys with guns aren't going to. But a nationwide strike, I think the Canada protests, the Turkish protests, showed how terrified the government got in Canada of working people, truckers, sh- basically stopping work. Did you see that, Dan- yeah, I Daniel? Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw that. I have my problems with the trucker strike in, in, uh, in, uh, in Canada. But, uh, but yeah, but, but yes, I mean, people who stop work, who, uh, who clog uh, uh, highways, um, essentially make their views known through sheer force of numbers, or, or what we're seeing in, uh, in Iran today. Uh, you know, uh, as where essentially the government seems to be, uh, you know, uh, seems to be falling apart under the impact. Uh, so I think that's, that's a much better model than a bunch of, you know, militia guys, you know, with their, uh, with their AR-15s, you know, you know Going off to do battle with the 101st Airborne, they wouldn't last 15 seconds. And Daniel, let me run an idea by you. Uh, I think that I've been thinking about this for a couple of days, that basically the people who are in favor on the left during the early part of the century, not this century, last century, this century is only 20 years old or so, but the people who were pro-union and often socialist or communists, they were defending workers who faced genuine hardship. For instance, miners or people working at horrible factory jobs. Whereas today, the union people are defending baristas at Starbucks, who, I'm sorry, are not exactly working in a coal mine. So do you think part of the difference between socialists now and socialists back in you know, the early 20th century was the people they were defending. Actually, you know, at the time, there was no uh, child labor laws or there were no laws about a 40-hour work week or so on. And they become, I think, victims of their own success. So what say you, Daniel? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean yes. I mean, I mean, first of all, conditions, as you know, uh, during the, as a turn of the century, were horrendous, absolutely horrendous. I mean, uh, the the brutality, the, the the poverty that was imposed on uh, on immigrants, uh, 
was amazing, whether it was, you know, Italian miners in the coal fields or Jewish garment workers in the, in the Lower East Side. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the, the bosses were, were the, the, the whole arrangement was just punishing, really brutal. And yes, some, some really huge strikes broke out very tumultuous strikes um, that were actually, for the most part, really but were mostly crushed. Um, but, you know, but look at, look at a, a, a bar, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything bad about, about a barista today because they're really poorly paid. Because they might paid. do something to your drink, let's face it. Right. <laughs> Number one. Number two, they're really poorly paid. Okay. They have no economic security whatsoever. Um, they're treated very arbitrarily. And so I, so I, I, I sympathize entirely. Listen, when I, was at, when I was out of college, one of the first things I did out of college was to organize a holiday inn. Back in, you know, back when I was 22 years old and me and another woman organized a holiday inn uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, you know, and these were, you know, these were waitresses, cocktail waitresses, uh, uh, maids who, 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 you know, who cleaned up in the hotel, uh, cooks, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they, you know, they, they didn't have it as bad as coal miners did, you know, back in 1914, but they still needed a good union. I mean, unions are very important. I mean, they're the only thing that, that, that inject any kind of element of democracy into the workplace. Otherwise, you're, you're a, a slave working for a boss who can treat you as arbitrarily as he wishes uh, and, can, and has a thousand different tricks up his, up his sleeve to get around, you know, federal uh, labor law as well. Um, so, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I sympathize with the, with the baristas and, you know, entirely. My only problem with the history of the union movement in America is that it wasn't political enough. They didn't really challenge the entire political structure as directly as they perhaps should have, although it would have been very difficult. Now, Daniel, I'm, I'm very interested in that, actually. You said you were organizing people at a Holiday Inn, right? Yeah. So when you're first organizing, what surprised you? What did you learn about the difficulties? What difficulties did you have in, organi in, in organizing people that somewhat surprised you, Daniel? Does we that make sense? We didn't have any difficulties at all. We signed them up really fast, and they and everyone was very was very happy to join. And we we were organized the place wow. for three or four days, and and uh, and, and wow. gave the uh, the the owner uh, a list of cards. Back then, they didn't have as many legal tricks as they have now. Nowadays, they would have called a a specialist law firm, you know, that would have taken us to court, fired us, you know, hit us with stupendous legal fees, etc. But in those days, you just like you know got a got a majority of workers, a clear majority, three-fourths of the workers to, uh, to sign cards, and they, um, and they signed them quite readily. Uh, you know, you know the, as people point out, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the public sector, workers uh, have relative freedom to organize unions, and the unionization rate is somewhere around 60 or 70 percent. In the private sector, where there's no freedom, it's less than 5 percent. So, in other words, if you allowed workers true freedom to, uh, to, to organize, you would see tens of millions of workers join unions overnight. Does, that, does what I'm saying making sense to you? Absolutely. And, and so what you're saying surprised you, in fact, is that I'm not putting words in your mouth, but no one had done it before because you had 
quick success, right? Yeah, yeah. And and, and there, you know, there I was, a youthful Marxist, you know, uh, dealing with a lot of uh, working class people. But there was no issue. We signed them up really fast, and they were they were very happy to uh, to to come on board. Now, one of the uh, of my- in fact, and in fact, my 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 co my co organizer was a gay woman, and that didn't matter either. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, and it's not surprising to me. Now, how did the Holiday Inn react? I assume they weren't real happy. They weren't real happy, but they were. They back in those days, they were. They, I must say, they were good sports. I must say, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to like, I'm supposed to hate the bosses, but they actually were, were you know, were, were good sports, decent about it. They saw we had the cards, and they said, okay, you know, let's uh, let's negotiate. No, it's very, very interesting. And because we were talking about activism on the show earlier, because tomorrow there's a bunch of events going up about activism for joining Assange. Now, do you have anything to say about that? Oh, I'm, 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 I defend, I'm very pro Assange. I mean, I think Assange, I mean, what he's been treated, he's been treated worse than Soviet dissidents were treated in the 1970s. I mean, this guy's had, this guy's been, been in, 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 in solitary confinement under very harsh circumstances for what is it now five years uh his his uh his health has suffered his uh his mental functions have suffered uh i mean he's I mean, the the full force of the state is being thrown against him uh, and it's it's been brutal no good good point so remember i, I just want to remind everybody tomorrow's the day get out and do some activism for Assange, wherever you are in any form social media Get on the street, whatever. So I want to remind people of that. Now, Daniel, did you see the footage of Zelensky calling for NATO to do a nuclear <laughs> strike on Russia? Yes, I did. And do you I think did, I did. that sure did? When was the last person you saw someone even nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize who was worthy of that? No, that, what that, do you was, think uh, that Nobel- was a. What do I yeah, think of that? I mean, the, I think Nobel Prize. Uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. The Nobel Peace. The Nobel Peace Prize has been uh, has been politicized uh, tremendously. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I think the process works when you're talking about chemists or biologists. Those people, I'm sure, deserve the prize. But the uh, the, the Peace Prize has been endlessly politicized. It's been politicized since the 1970s. I mean, essentially, uh, whoever the U, whatever cause the U.S. wants to promote, the Nobel Committee, uh, you know, gladly hops on board. And and the Nobel yes. Committee did not Nobel Committee did not give an award to Julian Assange. Right. No. No. Right? Exactly right. What What did you think about Obama getting the Nobel Peace Prize like two days after he was in office? <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm exaggerating I think, somewhat, but not much. I think I think I think he got the Nobel Cool Cool Prize. I mean, he's such a cool guy. They had to give him the uh, the Peace Prize. I mean, uh, you know, it was a joke. I mean, it's just, it just shows the, the politicization of that, of that award. But really, uh, but, I, but I'm really serious. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I think that the, you know, the, 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 the biology awards, the physics awards, the chemistry awards, those are, those are meaningful. But when it comes to, uh, to the Peace Prize, it has been endlessly politicized. I think it's really uh, just completely outrageous. Now, how great do you personally consider the danger now? Because... We've had guests, Mark Slobodin on the show a few days ago, said he's actually worried about the danger of a nuclear confrontation. And 
Are you seeing actions from Biden that make you think the Biden administration is considering the preemptive use of nukes? Daniel Czar, what do you think? I, I haven't I haven't seen that. I mean, that's I mean, that's that's really hard to believe. But I think the Biden administration has been very, very aggressive and that it really deserves the blame for 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 sort of marching the world to the precipice. I mean, I've said this all along. I mean, it's completely, the way the U.S. behaved is completely outrageous. They pushed Russia to the wall. Uh, I mean, in, in, uh, in 1997, I believe it was, Big New uh, Brzezinski wrote a book called The Grand Chessboard. It's a bestseller, one of the most important books in the, in the, uh, in the, in the history of, uh, of U.S. Um, uh, uh, foreign policy theory. Uh, and he called for breaking Russia up into uh, into three parts. So I think that Putin has got has got has got a real justification to fear that his, that he is facing that Russia is facing a direct threat to its existence if uh, if the if the U.S. prevails in this war war in the Ukraine. And I think that's what's pushing uh, Putin to 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 make these desperate statements. Now, so we had President Biden announce early in the week, thank God he's running for president in 2024. I'm sure you saw that announcement. And you're getting excited about voting for him, right? Yeah, I'm not going to vote for him. Okay, so Daniel, uh, do you think that if it's looking like Biden, first off, let me ask you a general question. Do you think he's actually going to run? We've had a number of people say they don't think he's going to, you know, for one reason or another, make it to the election. If you're betting yes, I, on that. I, 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 would, I would give you three to one odds. He will not make it to the election. And what do you think would be the reason he wouldn't run? I think it's his, 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 yeah, his biological systems are, in, are, in, are declining quite markedly. And it seems like there's plenty of action, legal action, on his son Hunter now. And yes. that's a story that's not going to go away, I don't think. Do you, Danny, uh, what do you think about the Hunter Biden stuff? I, I think it's very serious. Very serious. I mean, I, 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 thought the, I thought the laptop all along was really serious. I think that the prosecution of, of Hunter Biden will pose great problems uh, for his father because um, he'll be dragged into the investigation, number one. And number two, I have always thought that, uh, that, that, that Joe Biden himself went over the line. I mean, I mean essentially, uh, uh, Joe Biden met, met with Hunter's business, prospective business partners, I think the number is, on 14 separate occasions. And yet he claimed to have no knowledge of, of, of the activities his son was engaged in. It's not plausible. I mean, I don't, I don't care how mentally out of it the guy is. It's still not plausible. And because I would say there's so many elements to this story. For instance, there's the pictures in the video. And the only reason that's significant is because it gives the media pictures and video to run on the stories. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. But they, I, think that, I think the media realizes they can't cover the story up any, anymore, any longer. I mean, they covered it up for, for months and months. And then, you know, that, that, that open letter by the 50 uh, 
intelligence officials saying it looked like a Russian, uh, a Russian uh, disinformation uh, uh, scheme. I mean, that was one of the most bizarre and disgraceful incidents in modern American politics. But they can't get away with, they can't get away with, with it anymore. So they're forced to recognize that there is a that Joe Biden faces a serious problem here, and that his son was engaged in, in what looks to me to be clear, clearly corrupt activities. And do you, are you surprised that the government of Ukraine? I think the, the the point of having a corrupt government like that under your thumb is that you can make money in all sorts of nefarious ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a it's a cash cow for oligarchs to milk. Right now, I, I'd say, you know, Hunter Biden has all the classic symptoms of being an oligarch, using his political connections to make money, and big yeah. money. Yeah. And uh, historically, we've seen that in Vietnam, for instance, that drug trafficking was part of the CIA's modus operandi. And I think that in countries like Ukraine that are so corrupt, because the legal system is broken down, people can get away with a lot. And I think we'll find out, you know, do you believe the biolab story? The and I'm gonna. It's a softball question because I think you believe Victoria Nuland, right? No, no. I mean, like, look, 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 I'm skeptical of the biolab theory. However, I think the U.S. should answer questions that the world has. Okay. I mean, like, essentially, the the U.S. has has grilled other nations on far, you know, on far flimsier bases than the biolab story. So I'm very happy to, to see the U.S. To see pressure put on the U.S. to open up in some kind of, you know, uh, global forum as to exactly what it was doing with these laboratories and dismissing the whole thing as, as Russian-Chinese dis- disinformation. It's just not going to work. The U.S. should open up, should come clean as ex- exactly what these labs were doing. And, and, there's and, no I, doubt. and, I, and I'm, I'm not saying they were necessarily engaging in bio war. But I think that other countries have concerns, and those concerns are reasonable. And do you think, I think it's pretty obvious that if the Republicans win in the midterms and have control of committees, you're going to start to just see stuff open up on those issues, including the Hunter, including the biolabs. Do you have any doubt of that, Daniel? No doubt at all. I think the, I think the, Republic, I think the first thing the Republicans will do will be to impeach uh, Biden on corruption charges. And do you think it's got a chance of succeeding? Because the last few Uh, impeachments haven't gone that well. I presume that they will not get a conviction because that requires the two-thirds majority in the the Senate. I can't imagine the Senate will will capture two, that the Republicans will capture two-thirds of the Senate. But it only requires a simple majority for, to impeach. uh, And the Republicans, it looks like they will have that as of November 8th. Well, Daniel, great appearance. And thanks so much for talking to Brave and answering his great question. He's part of our viewer community here on right. the backstory. And thank you, my, Daniel, for making us all smarter. <laughs> Daniel Zar, thanks so much. And Mark Sabata, thanks so much to your parents in the first hour. And thanks to all of you. Tell people about this show. Hit like, hit subscribe. 
and share it on social media. I'm Lee Stranahan. We'll be back Monday on The Backstory. Assange.